1: Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast Part 1 episodes are designed to be self-contained, fully satisfying experiences in themselves. But for hardcore philosophy fans, we record for another hour or so to release behind our various paywalls to folks that pitch in to help us make this show. What you're about to hear is a preview of one of these Part 2 episodes. We hope you enjoy it. This is the Partially Examined Life Episode 289 Part 2. We've been discussing Shaftesbury-Hutchinson and Hume on aesthetic inner sense theory. I think we wanted to hit Hume in some more detail since that is the most famous essay. I did notice today, Very Bad Wizards just put up an episode on just this thing by itself. So they scooped us those bastards. On the,
2: on the Hume? Judgment of taste? Yes. Interesting. I want to listen to that. I like the fact that Hume starts us out with an antinomy he's got two conflicting common sense views about a standard of taste. One of them is that it's relative that taste is about sentiment and there's no reference to anything beyond itself that, you know, to each their own. And there's not really a corresponding matter of fact, you know, when it comes to beauty and the beauty is not out there in the object, right? But it's a matter of conformity between object and faculties, all that stuff. And, the other common sense view is that clearly there are some writers who are better than others. Like you know, his example is Milton versus this guy Ogilvy, who I've never read, and we know why. Yep. Or he was really, really good, <laughs> he, but he, he wasn't just wasn't good as good, good enough. Yeah, to make he it was good exactly. to the you know he was like uh, minor leagues. <laughs> yeah, are still really, really, really good, but then his, it doesn't matter. History never remembers you. I think those are, like, intuitively, we're all prone to accept both of them to some extent. So then the question is how you resolve that antinomy. I I agree. It's the epitome of the problem. Let's just start at the beginning, I guess.
1: I didn't realize, I guess, the editor here, Jonathan Bennett, maybe, informed us that just there was something revolutionary about Hume's using taste to talk about art as a whole, that at least the implication here in this uh, bracketed intro is that maybe the way it was used back then is like, oh, that's in bad taste. Or it's really just to refer to something that is vulgar, that is common, is sort of an aristocratic way of talking about, oh, you have taste, you don't have taste. And not necessarily like you would actually talk about a painting as being like, you have taste because you appreciate this painting, that that was actually kind of an original use of the term. I thought that was unusual. And we also get the firmly connecting us to ethics here, which is really the, all three of these readings, that's the context, is that we're, if you have this sort of view, at least it can be available to you, unlike for Kant, you know, who was very influenced by Hume, but uh, had a very different idea of, you know, a very rationalist ethics. But for Hume, certainly, and it seems like for for Hutcheson, and I'm not sure about Shaftesbury, but I believe Jaspery was kind of the guy who came up with this moral sense theory. The Hutchison, he has two essays in this book that we looked at, the first on beauty and the second on morality, and that's explicit like, okay, I'll deal with beauty first because that's kind of uncontroversial. And then I'll show you, actually, you can say the same thing about morality so that just our approval of good behavior, of good character traits is very much the same, like that we don't get these things out of reason. We have a natural sense for, wow, what a beautiful action this was. You know, th- And that's what ends up grounding morality. In the course of that, in Hume, the aside on moral differences, he brings up maybe a disanalogy. He says, the great unanimity is usually credit to the influence of plain reason, which in all these cases maintains similar sentiments in all men and prevents the controversies to which the abstract sciences are so much exposed. So far as the unanimities real, we can accept this explanation it it is satisfactory, but we must also allow that some part of the seeming harmony in morals can be explained as arising from the very nature of language. So in other words, everybody agrees that virtue is good and vice is bad because those are loaded terms. You know, it's not like we argue, do you think the beautiful is beautiful (laughs) or something like that? It's that they're sort of the generalizations are built into ethics in a way that maybe they aren't in aesthetics.
2: So So for instance, you know, Homer may be trying to tell us that courage is good, but then show us particulars that we would find immoral and not really appropriate acts of courage or, you know, justice or choose any virtue you want. We agree that those things are good, various virtues or like courage or being just or being generous, but the devil is in the details and we will tend to disagree about particulars. And he thinks the case is, you know, really opposite with regard to the sciences where we agree on particulars, but we disagree about generalizations. So questions of fact and the sciences where disagreement will actually turn out to be kind of once you do a little bit of conceptual analysis, those disagreement about generalizations falls away. So anyway, the upshot is that he's not a big fan of delivering general precepts in ethics. It doesn't do a lot for us. But that's similar, right, to in not delivering exactly general precepts and aesthetics either, right? Yeah, I mean, I think he's going to say there are general rules, but those rules are not fixed by a priori reasoning. So this is just after, you know, what I call the antinomy. So the next thing in the text he does spells out that contrast between two common sense points of view and then... He will tell us that there are rules of composition in a way, but they're not. You can't reason them out. They're not a priori. Rather, they really have to do with general observations about what people universally find pleasing. So we can't do give these geometrical rules, and we and we kind of know that because when we look at, say, for example, fiction and we see how hyperbole is used in metaphor. And kind of violations of language, and the mashups that the imagination creates. We can see how rules are not really amenable to that element of creativity and the, the kind of swerve aspect. Let's call it to go back to Lucretius. That's in our that's in our art. And yet he says, you know, there there are rules of art, and they can be discovered by observation. If you're a genius, you can kind of intuit them. But these are empirically discoverable phenomena about what counts as a good composition. So the next step is to say, even though there are these general rules, it doesn't mean everyone's going to always agree.
3: Mm-hmm. And he's going to blame Do you want to read some of that PC language there page 8? Right,
2: what he's going to do is, because this is a pivotal step in the argument, he's going to say, when they don't agree, it's, we're going to blame that on faculties. We're going to say they're disturbed, or they're not delicate enough, they don't operate properly, so that's the way we're going to Explain disagreement, but what page are you on?
3: The paragraph that starts "The admirers and followers of the Quran." Yeah, do you want <laughs> to? Well,
2: That's part uh, of the we... ethical thing.
3: Which no, it's an aside, so we should just ignore it. Well, it's, it's going backwards. It's such an aside. To... We, I, I, it's an aside, but I wanted to <laughs> stick it in the text because you know, okay, it's like people who fucking put arguments in footnotes either it belongs or it doesn't. I'm looking at you, Kant. All right, so we want a standard of taste. A rule by which the various sentiments of men can be reconciled or at least a decision reached that confirms one sentiment and condemns another. That's what we want. By the end of this essay, are we going to have it? So why do we want it? Because we think taste is something like truth.
1: Right. It's a way of, we want to be able to shout down people who have wrong tastes. (laughs) And you can have wrong tastes. That's an important thing.
2: Yeah, there's, you know, there's a connection, right, for these guys between beauty and morality. and If there's no such thing as beauty, why would we say there's such a thing as morality? And when we think of cultural refinement, like a lot of this is just about the possibility of cultural refinement, the possibility that people can become more, quote-unquote, delicate and discerning and that there is some sort of moral improvement given to us by the arts. Yeah, it's important that it not just be completely relativistic. And for, you know, remember how Scruton says about this is that this is about social agreement and it's about belongingness in society and it's about how we coordinate. We are making these demands on other people to agree with us about what's beautiful and what's not because we are fashioning a form of life in which we all participate together. And if we can't agree on those things, we don't participate in the same form of life. We undermine the Hegelian recognition function, that sense of being identified with a larger whole. Right.
1: So the thing that he, we have to get over is this difference between judgment and sentiment. That if you're making a judgment about something in the world, right, or opinion, he says, a thousand men may have a thousand different opinions about some one thing, but exactly, just exactly one of them is true. And the only difficulty is to find out which one that is. As against that, a thousand different sentiments aroused by some one object are all right. Because no sentiment represents what is really in the object, and so no sentiment runs any risk of being false.
2: He's describing a position he rejects there.
1: Well, this is, I don't think he rejects it. I think we have to reinterpret that when we say your artistic sentiment is wrong, we're not literally, I mean, what is it about the sentiment that is wrong? He says a sentiment does mark a certain conformity or relation between the object and the organs or faculties of the mind. There's no chance of error there because if that conformity didn't exist, the sentiment wouldn't exist either. So in other words, right. you can't he, have the sentiment if you didn't have the cause He's not mechanism.
2: describing his own point of view there. He's describing one of the common sense of points of view in, the, in these antinomies. That's, that's really important. He's just paraphrasing the relativists in that. Which is not to say there, aren't, there isn't crossover between that and the, the idea that beauty is a secondary quality that Hume would agree with. But he's going to reject this relativistic idea.
1: This axiom that all tastes are the same seems to have gained the support of common sense, but there's certainly a kind of common sense that opposes it, or at least serves to modify and restrain it. Yeah, so I guess I see this as providing part of a a dialectical step. Uh, And that's where he brings up the Milton and Ogilvy, that when you're considering something like that, we don't hesitate to say that the sentiment of these purported critics that say they're the same is absurd and ridiculous. In that context, the principle of the natural equality of all tastes is totally forgotten. We admit it on some occasions where the objects seem nearly equal, but it seems like an extravagant paradox, rather an obvious absurdity when it's applied to objects that are so disproportioned to one another. So these two things that are, are of common sense, what is the philosophically correct theory that comes out of that? Well, it's, it's Hume's view.
2: We're familiar with the, the theory at an epistemological level, right? Because it's what I like to call constructivist. So he's not going to entirely reject the relativist position. You know, Like Hutchinson, he's going to say beauty is a secondary quality in the same way that color is. It's not like color is out there and in things. It's not like out there in things in themselves or the things themselves, I think is the phrase Hume uses. It's not like beauty is out there in the things themselves. It's, a, it's something that arises as a relationship between something out there and its effects on our faculties. But that doesn't mean that it isn't real, right? Red is real just because it's not out there in some thing in itselfy sense doesn't mean that things aren't really red or really green, that that distinction isn't a real distinction. It's just based in this causal relation between things in themselves and, and faculties. So that's the epistemological part of it. But that's the way we figure out what the standard of taste is. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do that by saying, Hey, let's break down the mind and talk about all the faculties and the intricacies of the mind, and then we're going to derive these general rules. And then if the objects meet these general rules, then we're all good. That's the thing that Hume wants to try to avoid by focusing on the critic.
1: If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelifecom slash support. Thanks for listening.